Hey, Pinkers, you're listening to episode 76 of the Pink Bike Podcast, and I'm your host, Mike Levy. In today's show, we're going to be talking about mountain bike copycats. That's products, events, and other things that have been reproduced, duplicated, imitated, and just plain copied from the original. So I think that word, copycat, it definitely has a bit of negative connotation to it, implying that maybe they copied their homework from someone else and didn't do all the work themselves, which probably wasn't the right thing to do. But I don't think it's entirely that simple in every instance either. I mean, you can't just unlearn something or force yourself to forget or abandon an idea that works well just because somebody else did it first, right? And what if you could actually improve on that original idea? So there are lots of complicated laws and rules about these things, of course, with long-winded explanations when copyrights, trademarks, and patents are involved with intellectual property. But the last thing we want to do on this podcast is put you guys to sleep so we're not going to go down those boring roads. Instead, we're just going to come up with a bunch of examples of mountain bike copycats, including some that improved on the original and some that only made us scratch our chins. And it's not only gear either, as we've got a few events and other things on our list of reproductions as well. So I've got the original Sarah Moore here with us today. No reproductions, but the original one and only real thing. Sarah, I think I know the answer, but I'm going to ask you anyway. How often did you copy a friend's homework or someone else's answers on a school test? Well, you know, I risk the answer, getting the answer wrong if I copied somebody else's homework. So, oh. <laughs> I, I didn't... Sarah's definitely straight A's. <laughs> yes. Everyone copied off of her. She did not copy. Yeah. <laughs> May have gotten in trouble because I let somebody copy me once. And then I was like, this isn't worth it. Do your own homework. <laughs> would, would you have let a young Mike Levy copy your homework so he could pass class for once? I probably would have felt bad if you were like, I can't pass this test. I'd be like, sure, you can copy my homework. And then I would have gotten in trouble and I would have, yeah. I feel like that's exactly what happened. There was somebody who was like, can I copy your homework? And I was like, okay, yeah, sure, whatever, no big deal. And then the teacher was like, you can't let people copy your homework. And I was like, why am I getting in trouble? This person bullied me into letting me, them copy their homework. <laughs> so they guilted you into it. So that's the strategy I need to employ is what you're saying. Definitely. Yeah. Guilt me into All right. letting me, you copy my homework. Speaking of reproductions that improve on the original, Pinkbike's other mic is here, of course. Casimir, I think my favorite imitation product might be cheap knockoff cereal. You could spend $10 on a box of colorful cereal from Kellogg's, or you could spend like half that and get a bag of sugar and breakfast chemicals from a no-name brand. Kaz, do you have a favorite knockoff food product that you can think of? Food product? Uh, I don't know. I'm not too picky about the brand. So like I'm not diehard Kellogg's or whatever. So I can go knockoff cereal. I did buy a knockoff Dremel tool recently and it works pretty good. So yeah, it looks just like a Dremel, but it came with like 5,000 attachments and it was pretty cheap. And How much was it? I think it was like $30 or something. It was, yes. Yeah, it was yes. pretty cheap. And it hasn't broken <laughs> or caught my house on fire or anything yet. So I think that's all right. <laughs> that's a good buy. I feel like that's a good buy. We've also got Henry Quinney. Henry, I have a very serious question for you. You're in need of new tires for whatever bike you're riding. Are you spending your money on real Minions? Or are you buying a Minion copycat? Honestly, this is actually something I'm, I'm kind of going through at the moment. I think um, I'm actually working through different brands, riding a lot of quotation mark copycat Minions. Mm-hmm. I've recently been on the um, the Mazza from Vittoria. Yeah. Fantastic tyre. And now I'm going on to some Kenda's offerings. And I basically just started with Maxxis and I'm just working my way through. Oh, what are your early impressions? Are your early impressions that... It has to be a minion or nothing, or no, I. Oh, this is the thing. I think the the minion is kind of the DHR two. I still, the, the rear I still think is great, but I'd rather have an Asagai over a front minion personally. So even by Maxis's own standards, I think I think it's hmm. It's having its a uh, packed lunch stolen a bit by the other tires. All right, all right. That sounds like a, another podcast topic, if you ask me. So we're going to talk about that at another point. But first, we've got to do news, and the first thing on our news list 
is really important and exciting. Yeah, I Sarah? thought we should start with that one because you're definitely the most excited about. Uh, Specialize has been granted a patent for a linkage fork or a patent that is titled Simplifies Simplified Gas Spring Setup for a Trailing Link Cycle Wheel Suspension, which relates to an air spring design for a linkage fork. The inventor is Dave Weagle, the guy behind the Trust Shout and Message Linkage Forks, but he's not involved with specialized plans at all. When trusts closed their doors, an intellectual property portfolio was put together and then sold in order to cover the company's liabilities. That means that Specialized now has the patent on the design that Weagle created and can implement it however they'd like. So how do you think they're going to use it? I'm so excited. I don't even know what to say. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, but for, let's be serious here for a second. I, I really like that trust fork, but obviously it had some drawbacks, right? Like it was pretty harsh. It was super expensive. Like there are all sorts of things that are going to keep it in that current form, in that original form from being a real thing. I feel like Kaz, do you agree? Yeah, definitely. I, I wrote the shout, so I never wrote the message, but I wrote the shout and I just didn't really quite get along with that. There's a lot of interesting things though. So yeah, like you said, there could be potential maybe if they can get away from the weight issue that happens a lot um and just some of like the on-trail feel like there's pros and cons it's one of it's definitely a polarizing ride feel i'd say so, yeah yeah it'd be interesting and this so yeah like sarah said basically specialized bought the bought the patents from dave weagle um so now they kind of have like a portfolio of things allows them to not need to worry about infringing on other people's patents because now they own them and so they can kind of do with it what they'd like yeah so for those who aren't familiar with the trust fork um it basically works with your bike's geometry, the trailing linkage, to make the handling feel more consistent. And that's really the big advantage is how it can improve the handling of your bike. Uh, in my experience, I found it to be quite harsh and rough on Rudy Rocky Ground, which is basically all of Squamish. So <laughs> it kind of, it's a 120 mil fork and it kind of beat me up a lot here, but I feel like in a, in a smoother location like Kamloops, it would be pretty impressive. Kaz, there were some questions under that article that Seb Stott wrote just about basically what we might see in the future. And some people were wondering if maybe it might be released in the future under like a specialized sub-brand, sort of like Revol Wheels. Maybe they're going to do something like that. Do you think that's a possibility? Yeah, I'd say it definitely could be. We didn't get any answers from Specialized. Uh, I actually talked to Dave Weagle yesterday, and he just kind of clarified that he's not involved in this at all. He was stoked that they're going to hopefully actually do something with it, possibly. Just the fact that a bigger company now owns the patent. He was excited to see that it potentially has a future, but he has he couldn't offer any insight as to what, if any, um, products we'll see from it. So, yeah. yeah. I have a question for Sarah. Sarah, just based on looks alone, is that a fork that you would run on your bike, or did the looks put you off? Definitely the looks would put me off of that fork. <laughs> I think we had yeah. this, like, even with, like, the Cannondale fork, you know, it's pretty different looking. And this is, like, next level different looking. So, yeah, I would. I don't like necessarily having a thing just because it looks different. So unless there's a real yeah. performance benefit, I, yeah, I'm not interested yet. But do you think telescopic forks look good or we're just used to how they look? Both. It's the latter. <laughs> I think they look because, good. <laughs> because there's, you know, it's kind of, there's no way a bicycle should look. And I, I don't mean, I'm not saying I'm a fan of the trust forks either in terms of aesthetic looks. Um, but yeah, like, are we just used to how a bike looks? And then something comes out and we think it's ugly or we think it's wonderful because it plays on what we already know, I think. Yeah, I feel like that's exactly it. We're, we're used to not only how a normal suspension fork looks, but how also how it works, including its drawbacks which it does have some. Um, but the way that the linkage forks work, specifically this trust fork, I mean, if you spend a lot of time on like a high quality, regular telescoping suspension fork, you will find the drawbacks of that trust fork. Um, yeah. I just can't believe, you know, Mike Levy, anti-gearbox, anti-idlers. Yeah. yeah. And he's like, you know, there's no consistency. 
like what? pick a kooky side and be on it oh <laughs> yeah well, no i i am on Gearboxes, the side of that trust too much. fork trust forks oh well that's completely reasonable what well ge- gearboxes are stupid gearboxes are stupid because our drivetrains work so well today <laughs> so does, oh my, a telescoping fork works pretty well too it works pretty well too but a gearbox just hear me out a gearbox doesn't give you advantage on the trail i don't rip off derailers like they just they all work for me so a gearbox to me doesn't give me an advantage on the trail right now a bunch of suspension dorks are like yun's wrong weight i don't care like i don't care you know um but the trust fork has some disadvantages for sure that we've talked about it has some advantages to Kaz's looking at me. Right now, <laughs> I think we should move everybody. on to the next news item here. <laughs> yeah, <that's good. laughs> it makes it makes the bike handle better, hundred percent. But it also kind of sucks on the bumps and the hey, that's its main job. <laughs> so like, hopefully, if Specialized can figure that out, then I'm all for trying it again. Specialized, I'm here. I'm here, ready to jump on that train. Awesome. So in other, we don't know much about it news, so we can speculate wildly. Uh, We were sent a photo of what looks like a new Yeti EMTB. And until now, Yeti has been one of the holdout companies that didn't make an EMTB. But now it looks like they're planning on adding some watts. The bike looks close to production with Yeti's standard Colorado flag decal, the Switch Infinity logo printed on the chainstay, and apparently multiple color options spotted at what looked like a dealer event. Although it has that Switch Infinity logo, it doesn't appear to have the system's typical suspension design using a six-bar linkage system and vertical rather than horizontal shock orientation. And the space normally occupied by those Kashima rods is full of what we assume is a Shimano EP8 motor. So Alicia wrote up an article when the photos came through. Is there anything you guys can say about this? This is awkward, Casimir. <laughs> can you explain this? <laughs> Well, looks like a bike. <laughs> so something we can talk about, we had a review of the Forbidden Dreadnought this week. So just there's a refresher that has 154 millimeters of rear travel, 170 millimeter fork, high single pivot suspension design, and it has an idler pulley. Seb Stott was the one that reviewed it, and he said that it's one hard bike to place. He said that although the drag from the idler is minimal, it's still not particularly responsive or engaging when you're climbing, even by enduro bike standards. But it's hard to call it a park bike either, because even though the suspension is far more sensitive and impressive than most 150mm travel bikes, there are situations when there's no hiding the fact it has significantly less travel than many bikes in that category. Seb's conclusion? He thinks it would make a lot more sense with a little bit more travel. Kaz, you rode this one earlier this year. Did you come to a similar conclusion? Um, I didn't have a ton of time on it. I don't think I thought that wasn't as much of an issue for me. Like I it has 150 millimeters of travel with a 170 fork. So it felt the terrain I took it on felt appropriate, but I could definitely see in rougher, even, um, you know, more bike parky stuff. You might want a little more travel. And I agree with his climbing, um, sentiments about it. It does feel like a bigger bike. So it is one of those bikes that feels big, but it's not quite as big as the biggest bikes. That makes <laughs> sense. So, you know, it's, um, yeah, you know, their other bike was, I believe it's 120 mils of travel. And so it almost seems like as a dreadnought, you'd want that to be the giant smasher bike but it's not quite that um it's interesting i know seb did like the longer chain stays and a lot of things about it kind of a i'd say more polarizing really for his his impressions he kind of ended up with a mixed mixed opinion on it but um it's you know a different option than the normal bikes that are out there right now and he broke two derailers on this bike do you know why that was yeah um it'd be easy to attribute that to the the axle path of the bike since it's all rearward, but I don't believe that's the case, um, that that derailleur should be able to handle it, you know, based on all of Shimano's specifications. Um, so it might just be a little bad batch of derailleurs or something. I don't think that, um, even talking to forbidden, they hadn't really seen that much. If only there was some kind of device built inside the frame and it removed, um, no, it'd be be crazy, crazy talk. (laughs) (laughs) Those ugly forks. Get me those ugly forks. (laughs) Uh, So we should move on and talk about the Maribor World Cup. This was the first dry race that we saw of the season and it made for some tight racing for the people who made it to the start line, at least. I don't know if we've ever seen so many injury reports leading up to a race. Yeah, I don't, I can't remember a race in recent memory that where everybody showed up with broken everything by the time qualifying happened. Yeah, that was kind of like the comments whenever we posted a new article. It was like, is there anybody going to be on the start line here? Was it 
due to the track or the conditions? What do you think was going on? Probably. I think it was the speed, like that speed that they were going and dry conditions. And then there's a gnarly rock garden right in the middle where you're going super fast. Yeah. So yeah, Windmasters, Bernard Kerr, Finn Isles, like there's a long list of riders who didn't even make it to the start line. And then some people who before the, they even got to Europe, I think Dakota Norton had a positive COVID test, couldn't go. Aaron Gwynn hurt his back and couldn't go. Um, Jamie Edmondson got uh, caught up with the Brexit rules and couldn't spend enough time in Europe to make it to the race. So there's a long list of riders who didn't make it. As a rider, would you rather be compromising your overall standings by missing a World Cup race? Or, you know, now people are getting injured and they're missing world champs. What do you think? What do you think is worse? Depends if you're in the mix for the overall or not, I guess. Otherwise, world champs would be kind of the your one chance to but shine. Even like getting year. like a top 20 overall, you know, those those 15th places, those, you know, just constantly accruing points is really, really important. And so actually missing one can be really detrimental to next, you know, like riders trying to go for protected status, etc. Like it can have big consequences. Mm. Yeah, but then imagine if you win world champs and then you're a top 20 rider, but then you win world champs, you're going to get better sponsors next year yeah. than if you had like 21st overall. I feel like that's exactly that has happened in the past. We've seen people win world champs that, you know, are top 20s, maybe haven't won a world cup, but they're like consistently in the top 20 getting after it. So Miriam, Nicole, and Loris Vergier took their first wins of the season on the absolutely brutal track, with Eleonora Farina coming second for her best-ever World Cup finish in the women's, and Thibaut Deprella securing his lead in the overall with his second place in the men's race. Camille Ballanche finished third, proving she's not just a wet-weather specialist, and Laurie Greenland took third in the men's race. In the junior categories, Jackson Goldstone came back from a heavy crash in time trading. He said his whole side was really, really sore. He crashed in that rock garden which you did not want to crash in that rock garden it looked absolutely terrible um and then phoebe galley from the uk won at the junior women's did you guys watch this race i did yes i watched it and i think jackson's result is i mean all those results are impressive but jackson's that crash i don't know how he didn't get hurt worse like it was just full body slam into the sharpest most pointy rock and then he won and his time would have been i think 17th in elite men somewhere around there i think he was faster than reese wilson even like and he's 16. Imagine being that good, Casimir. <laughs> That'd be so amazing. Yeah, Just imagine. Be, yeah, that would be really nice. <laughs> yeah, definitely couldn't even qualify for a World Cup. What? No, I was about even Ben Cathro didn't even qualify. And he's really fast, too. Wow. But yeah, it was a good race to watch. Super exciting. That track was cool. Lots of, like, weird little sections, creative line choices, and... uh yeah, just good. Yeah, I think it was cool because it was exciting right down until the final riders, which we didn't see in Leger because of the weather. You know, they just kept coming down slower and slower as the rain made the track worse and worse. And this track, it was right up until that final pavement corner where I was like closing my eyes because I did not want to watch anybody crash on that pavement corner. Especially Valley Hall. I was so afraid she was going to crash there and just like fully fry her mental state. Yeah. But she made yeah. it through, but I don't know. Yeah. 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 She said, I think she's playing it a little bit too safe after crashing in the fast one. So maybe she'll find that perfect balance at the, the next round. Maybe world champs. Um, leading up to the race, we also saw some new tech bits. What did you guys spot at this race? Yeah, I think Matt Beer put together that article. It looks like Schwalbe might have a new tire, maybe some kind of dry conditions thing. Um, comments all still tweaking their link on that Supreme bike. It seems like every race they have a new little little piece on there. Danny Hart was running some different magura levers but overall nothing drastic a lot of data acquisition was going on though at this uh, at this race seemed like even in the commentary they said tebow is running his system even in qualifiers so trying to get their suspension sorted out i think one neat interesting thing i saw was martin mays on his enduro bike kaz we talk a lot about how capable enduro bikes are they are they're crazy capable you know you know what they're not though and real downhill down. bikes. <laughs> yeah. I, I think he realized that too. Cause he even said, I think the day after the race, he posted something like I made a mistake. I shouldn't have raced this thing. Like yeah. probably should use a downhill bike. He put a, he put a Fox 40 on the front, of course. Um, but it was still his like hundred and I think it's a 160 mil travel mm -hmm. bike. Yep. And I mean, the thing is slack as hell I imagine, but yeah, not a downhill bike. And Mays ended up finishing 48th, I think. Eh, Sarah? Yeah. 
Yeah, so not, yeah. Uh, I mean, he he's won one of these things before, so I'm sure he's disappointed if he's not in the, you know, top 10, top 20, 48th was, yeah. Do you guys remember when he won an EWS and then the next weekend he won a World Cup downhill race? Yeah, that was the best. I like Martin. That was incredible. What the heck? <laughs> I just love the fact he won the downhill World Cup in like salmon waders. It was, in, it was in La Bresse and it was really wet. Yeah, And all these people and there's just this enduro guy that turns up wearing this waterproof onesie and just spanks everyone. I just thought it was yeah. sick. From the <laughs> flattest country on earth. <laughs> Get it, Martin. Um, so let's finish things off with the results from our recent tire poll. The question was, do you choose pure performance over a long lasting value tire? And what compound does that equate to for the type of riding you do? So from what I can see, the results were pretty consistent for XC bikes. Readers chose harder, faster rolling compounds. And on bikes with more travel, they chose secure rubber. And they're also riding lighter duty casing on their XC and trail bikes and heavier duty on their enduro bikes. Also, they're consistently putting stickier rubber in the front and heavier duty casing in the back of the bike. So did I miss anything or is it, you know, as you would expect? That sounds about right. I definitely put sticky tires on my short travel bike, though, because I need all the help I can get. So. <laughs> Maybe because you're taking I, it outside of its intended use. <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't put fast rolling rubber on my cross country bike. I put sticky rubber on my cross country bike. <laughs> I do the same, especially when it starts raining here. It's sticky rubber, heavier duty casings, but... Um, yeah, the results were pretty, pretty consistent. It makes sense too. So people are following the logical path to pick their components. Yeah. Henry, is that something you're doing because you're currently doing some sort of minion copycat test? Well, I'm going for, I'm trying to, so I did this, anyone that knows me would have known that I haven't shut up about inserts for the last six months. I'm convinced. I'm absolutely converted. And I've basically been going, trying to find tires that are between 950 grams a kilo so a lot so lighter heavy oh yeah depends on where to go. <laughs> but um compared to like your double down downhill casing and running with them with inserts mm-hmm. and so far i am convinced because now i've got some i got some of those kender pinners in because the, the pin has got a really interesting tread in that it actually has rows of tread which i often find those tires can give you loads of grip but they can be vulnerable to like a rock striking out on the rim so a light casing version of that with an insert could be absolutely perfect. What about those Tioga tires? Didn't Tioga have that one that had like the two stripe strips down the middle in the last couple of years? It's pretty strange looking. Was yeah, that Tioga? Am I right? uh, something like that, yeah. Yeah. Was that the L, the L block one? Yeah, it was like L block in the kind of in the center. Like it almost had no center tread. It just had yeah. on each side two of it. T- t- double edges. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, you're all, you have all side knobs, every knob it's in like your tires. the Darth Maul of, you know, tires <laughs> all right that brings us to questions and our first one is from pico poco he says he's a longtime fan of the podcast kaz he's got a 2021 commensal meta am with a coil shock he says he rides a lot of park but would love to do some two to three hour xc-ish rides and he wants to know should he get an extra downcountry bike or should he buy a spare wheel set that's lighter and has faster rolling tires um Pico Poco, my advice would be, it depends on who you're riding with. If you're doing those big days on your heavy bike with other people on heavy bikes, then, I mean, lighter wheels and tires are going to make that job easier, but it's probably less important than if you were riding with fitter people on way lighter bikes. I don't know. If I had that meta, Kaz, I don't think I would bother with an extra lighter wheel set. What about you? Yeah, I mean, if you have the budget for, it's always hard to tell someone buy an extra bike, but if you, lots of people have multiple bikes. So in this case, yeah, if I had that bike, I'd love to have a little short travel down country thing yeah. to go along with that. Because then you have your bike park bike, then you have your kind of quick ripper, and it's yeah. super fun to have the, the option. And that Meta AM with the coil sprung shock, coil over shock, like if he puts a light wheel set on it, he's going to take it from 37 pounds to 35 and a half pounds like you know yeah exactly wheels matter but also who cares <laughs> yeah if he gets a down country bike he could easily have it be 10 pounds lighter than that bike and that's going to feel really nice on those two to three hour rides like 10 pounds is a big difference we talk about weight not mattering yes. as much as some people think sometimes but 10 pounds you can't deny it. that's a huge difference so yeah, yeah if you can swing it go to get that little down country machine you'll have fun yeah henry the next question is from a fellow brit uh this guy his username is actually muddy brit as an illustration of why investing in racers is a waste of money, 
He says he's familiar with many of the top names in downhill and EWS racing, but remembers almost nothing about the teams they race for. He says that the bikes they're on basically have no effect on his purchasing decisions. Henry, what do you think? Do you agree? Does that do you feel the same or what? There's kind of a an idea in kind of pro-level mountain biking that you have bike sellers. That's not places underground where you store bikes, but it's your Brendogs, your Sam Hills, <laughs> that basically these are people that for whatever reason, they just make you want to ride the same bike as them. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's really, I think it's so difficult. I would love, I would love it if these races had more value like that. People, I think that the idea of following a race season it's kind of, it's like the purest form, right? And the people romanticize how much they're into it, how much everyone is into it. But as this person's alluding to, the reality is that to a lot of people, it doesn't matter a great deal. And for someone that loves racing, that I find that quite upsetting. And I kind of want to scream and shout and say, but look, you know, even like this top 40 rider, we're saying, you know, like Ben Castro, amazing rider, couldn't quite qualify for World Cup. These riders are so amazing. And there might be that top 50 rider you never heard of, and then a couple of years later, they turn out to be, you know, Benoit, Benoit Coulange or whatever, who's now podiuming. And, you know, there are so many riders like that that just need a couple of good results. And then maybe they might become influential. But I totally understand what they mean. Yeah. Although I wouldn't say I disagree with him by saying that investing in races is a waste of money. Like, think if you're Trek this weekend, you just had that shiny, shiny green bike on the top of the podium. People saw pictures of that bike. They know it's a Trek. They might not be in the market for a downhill bike, but in their mind, they're like, that Trek won. Jackson Goldstone won on a Trek. If you're common saw people see that common saw doing well so you know it's not everybody not everybody pays attention to that side of it but i think having you can even you know have images on your social media or whatever look look our racer did this even for people who don't follow sport they're like oh i have the same bike as this person that's winning a race yeah totally i mean i think also we did that state of the sports survey and if one thing it showed is that it's not that expensive to pay a downhill athlete you think about these road cyclists they're getting paid you know the top ones obviously only a few but the top ones are getting paid multi-million dollar salaries per year and then you think about them chucking like basically funding someone's racing for a season chucking them like a melted snickers and a crisp high five at the end of it and they've got that exposure so it's so cheap comparative to something like road cycling so yeah it might not have such big of a splash but you're not paying these people millions of dollars and maybe that makes a difference too yeah okay let's get to our next question this is from o science He says, what are some drawbacks to large sweep angles on handlebars? He says he loves the Jones handlebar on his gravel bike. It has, Jesus Christ, it has 45 degrees of sweep, Kaz. Yeah, yeah. He says they're super comfy and he doesn't see many mountain bike bars with that much sweep. Oh, science, I'll tell you why. Mountain bikers, we'd rather use something not as good than look weird. I feel like that's an example. Kaz, what do you think? Yeah, possibly, but also with that much sweep, you're you're reducing your cockpit of your bike. Like you're putting your yeah. position in a pretty different, it's a really different position and your hands. And, Perfect and for all these turns. long reaches that we have now. Yeah, I mean, that will shorten your reach for sure. And turning, you can turn a lot quicker because your hands are like in your stomach. So you can just like yeah. turn yeah, a little I'm not, bit. I'm not saying we should have handlebars with 45 degrees of sweep, but there are interesting handlebars out there from other handlebars from Jones and especially from SQ Lab with something like 16 degrees of sweep. Maybe Kaz, I'm just picking that number out of the air and people seem to love them. Maybe we should get one, get one to test. Yeah, I think we have already possibly, but you could get another one. <laughs> okay <laughs> i think we might but no I, I think there are merits to more sweep and bars like personally i like bars with 10 degrees of sweep which is kind of more Why, than though? some have you, the, have the you way tried it feels, the makes my wrists feel i haven't tried have you, i bet I, I would potentially like it yeah but like even 10 is going a little more like in the last few seasons it seems like they're going a little more sweep just kind of brings your hands and your wrist angles a little different position yeah um, but yeah it's worth trying especially if, you, if people are having wrist issues or yeah. even forearm pump and stuff I, I know somebody with wrist issues, somebody who has two wrist issues recently. Her name's Sarah Moore. Sarah, do you have, do you get sore wrist, wrists when riding? That's hard to say. Do you get sore wrists when riding? And would you consider a handlebar with a lot more sweep than normal? Your little tongue twisters there. Um, yeah. So I have to say my left wrist does not cause me any pain at all because it was just like one bone that was broken and then the right one is a little bit more finicky but i think as long as like you're in such a strong position when you're holding the handlebar it's not like 
you're not really bending your wrists very much. So I don't really have any trouble when I'm just holding on to the handlebar. So I don't really have to do anything special there. And yeah, I don't really want to shorten my reach on my bike. So yeah. I've got a pretty there you go. standard sweep. Sarah thinks, Sarah thinks they're dumb, everybody. <laughs> yeah. Final word. <laughs> <laughs> the end. I broke my wrist once. So it's, you know, Kaz probably broken his wrist like four times. <laughs> No, only once. Oh, okay. Every mountain cool biker then. has broken a wrist. <laughs> yeah. 100%. Henry, you've broken a wrist, right? I think I broke my wrist, eh? I think it was only a small one, but it was pretty bad for a couple the, of weeks. That stupid so. staphoid bone. You didn't actually get it cast. <laughs> I didn't get it cast. It was fine. It was fine. I basically... <laughs> Boys. So, <laughs> Boys. I and I was working in a bike shop the next day. And back in the UK, we were doing like cycle to work scheme. And my wrist was absolutely aching and I was filling in this form. And as I was filling it in, I was like, and your, you know, your occupation? And she was like, I'm a doctor. I was like, oh, perfect. I was like, look at this. What have I done? And she was like, yeah, you'll be all right. You might, you'll probably be fine. I was like, sweet. So that's the closest I've got. <laughs> Ask the client about your wrist. Pretty much the same as getting an x-ray. <laughs> <laughs> pretty much. Okay, we've got one last question. This is from Chris Rayner. And he wants to know what the appropriate time is from when a race ends to when someone mentions the winner in the title of their article. He says he's so tired of people whining about spoilers. Sarah, I kind of agree with him. Like, hey, if you don't want to know the results, hey, dumbass, don't go on the internet. Yeah, I have to agree. So since we've had Ed Spratt doing the weekend stuff, I get to watch the Downhill World Cup without knowing all the results first. Um, Because I used to go and put up the photo epic before we had it on the weekend. So I'd see all the results and then I'd watch the race. And it does totally ruin the race when you do it that way. But now I wake up, I don't check social media, I don't check Pink Bike, I just watch the race and then I go riding and like I get the full experience of watching the race, which is really fun. But yeah, just don't check the internet. Like it's easy. Just go watch Red Bull TV, go directly to the website. You don't have to go on Pink Bike. Like, you're going to get spoilers if you go on Pink Biker Instagram or Facebook. Like In last week's podcast, we talked about things that we think brands waste money and resources on and had stuff like racing budgets, too much packaging materials, and a bunch of other stuff that we moaned about. But Pink Bike user Jason475 had a great question under that podcast. He said, what about the amount of time, money, and effort spent copying the Maxxis Minion DHF and 510 shoes? Kaz, that got me thinking. We should probably do a podcast about copycats, and that's exactly what we're going to talk about next. That was an excellent question, Jason475, so I stole the idea. Today, mountain biking's copycats. Products, events, and other things that have been reproduced, duplicated, imitated, or just plain copied from the original... I'm not going to start with the most obvious, which is the Maxxis Minion. I'm going to start with SWAT. So I know I talk some shit about SWAT, but I will admit that it makes amazing sense. Kaz, what does it stand for again? Storage, water, and tools? Storage, water, and tools? Air and tools. Air Air. and tools. That makes sense. Yeah. Specialized SWAT storage system. It lets you carry stuff in the down tube of your mountain bike via that little hatch underneath the bottle cage mount if you've never seen it. Basically, you just pop open the little door and you could stuff anything in there from jackets to candy, tools. You could probably get a couple dozen donuts in the down tube of your bike if you really tried, which we probably should. We first saw SWAT way back in 2015 when it came out. Kaz, I think that was on the then new Stump Jumper possibly. That's the first place we saw it. That sounds right. Yeah. And I I think I made fun of it, but immediately it makes all the sense in the world. Since then, we've seen Specialized put SWAT on a bunch of their other bikes, including some sold by Trek. (laughs) So it's easy to make fun of Trek for copying SWAT. And that's definitely something we've done. But I also think we should give them kudos for taking that idea and integrating it into their own down tubes it is different. Uh, they use a little bit different sort of door hatch system. Kaz, doesn't it come on some of their aluminum bikes as well? Yeah, it's true. It's on, uh, yeah, definitely a couple of aluminum models. And Specialized hasn't integrated their SWAT system on their aluminum models yet, as far as I know. So, yeah. I don't think you can patent a hole in the down tube. I, I think I'm right. But you can, I think what the issue might be for other companies that want to copy this is the little door, I think that how the door and the hatch works is probably patented. Um, 
Do you think we're going to see anybody else do this soon, Kes? Yeah, I'd bet you'd see at least two companies in the next two years, if not more. Yeah, exactly. That'd be my prediction. I think, um, who is it? There's a German company doing it as well, and they make like a real nice CNC door. It is, they make those really, really light bikes. Ah, uh, the, the name. Last? Last, last yeah. Yeah, because there's a swap box, but then there's also all the other, like I think Specialized kind of started that idea of like they put the, you know, tool in the head cap and they put the little Allen key underneath the bottle cage at first. And they kind of got mm-hmm. that whole idea of like, you don't need to be carrying your tools. They should just be on your bicycle. And then even that Cannondale scalpel like race bike that we got last year for the field test that came with the tool on it. So it's kind of cool to see that that's something that people have taken They've taken the swap box, but then they've also taken all of the, just the fact that you can carry stuff on your bike should be what you do instead of carrying it in your back pocket and falling on like Mike Levy's said before. <laughs> That's a story for another time. <laughs> I think we've told it before. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We, we should also say that Specialized definitely isn't the first to use integrated on-bike storage. If you go back far enough, way back, there were companies offering clever, clever, weird things in the early 90s and the 80s. But Specialized definitely took it to the next level with their SWAT stuff. Kaz, do you have a favorite SWAT feature? Is it the downtube storage or is it one of the tools that's integrated in your bikes? What do you prefer? I, think, I mean, I do like that SWAT downtube storage. Like if everybody had that, I would love it. But I do like the little tool, the little tool in the uh, in the steer cap. Like it's just so clever. It's spring loaded. It pops up and the tool's the right size. And I, I definitely use that a lot. So um, I like I like all of it, basically. Yeah. I like the fact that that's like a tiny integrated thing as opposed to like the huge replacement things, like the four pound multi-tool that goes down your steer tube and has is made of like 87 different pieces. I like that the specialized one, you just, you push it, it pops out and it's there for you. Henry, you're about to release a new bike from your bike company called Henry's Bikes. Cool. Yeah. I'm guessing that you would include some sort of SWAT box. Is there any way that you would improve on SWAT? Oh, I think it's really good. I think it's going to sound really silly. The thing I would include, the problem is that moisture can get in there just when you wash the bike and stuff. It would be cool if there was like a covered a covered hole that it could dry out over time. Because if you, if you put your bike away in there and you leave your jacket in there and you come back two days later, the whole thing is like a mess. That's the only thing. But take your jacket, obviously, is the sensible thing to do. Mm. I had one, actually, and I, I think the SWAT's amazing. I think I was like, I had a little, you know, one of those dry bags, put a jacket in there and then you put it in and you've always got like a dry, warm jacket, no matter what the weather. It's so good. Yeah. What if you could fill it with those little like silica gel packets that comes in things so that they don't like, yeah, like, absorb moisture? Just stuff some of those in there. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe like a little fan. You can get like an axis powered fan, like a little battery, and it can just like dry your stuff out overnight. Yeah, I just think it's the amount of biscuits I could fit in that down tube. It was fantastic. Yeah. Absolutely fantastic. There's a trail made my friend ride called the Oreo Bash because I had just a whole pack of Oreos in this down tube. They were just smashing from end to end. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, hey, Kaz, does Trek include a tool sleeve storage thing to keep things from rattling around like Specialized does, something like that? Yeah, they do make one as well. It's not, Trek stuff is good, but I will say that Specialized does it better, like having used both. They both work, but like Specialized has more room in their down tube and Trek's t- steer tube tool, it's nice, but it's just like a little bit more finicky than the Specialized one. But mm-hmm. again, it's kind of like the first iteration. I'd assume that Trek's going to get it dialed for the next one. Specialized kind of had a, a bit of a head start, but yeah, but yeah, Trek has similar items available. But the Specialized stuff is, the whole SWAT system is just the right amount of dorky. You know, it's flirting with the idea of being really dorky, never quite getting there, and just being executed really well. You shouldn't be worried about being dorky, Henry. You should just be worried about having the tools and the jacket that you need. Dude, I'm the guy that lives off Oreos, eating, like, you know, tiny warp-proof jacket. I mean, that ship has sailed about me being a dork. Yeah. I'm, I'm worried about everyone else. <laughs> okay, fair <laughs> enough. <laughs> Since we're talking about SWAT, we should probably talk about bibs that have storage pockets in the back. And Specialized, many years ago, they were one of the first companies to offer those. And for me, Kaz, that was game-changing because I don't want to wear a backpack. I like doing huge rides. And those early SWAT bibs, 
they couldn't quite hold a water bottle all that comfortably without it falling out. (laughs) Not that you should hold a water bottle back to everybody, but they they sort of started that trend of storage pockets on the back of bibs. And since then, we've seen that a ton with other companies and Specialized also improved on their originals. Do you wear storage bibs, Cass? No, I don't wear a chamois, so what? they don't. Yeah, so I don't know. Unless Good they start making yourself, a chamois Good with man yourself. else. I, don't I feel like but, they uh, had a shirt do... at one point that was like a layer that you could just wear with like three pockets yeah. underneath your regular jersey. So it was kind of like an inside out cross country jersey, which I always thought just wear a cross country jersey, but those aren't cool. So you have to wear your first layer, which is your SWAT pockets, and then you put your loose jersey over it so you look cool. Yeah, there's a lot of rules going on there. I just wear a hip pack. I'm <laughs> fine with being a dork that way. But I, yeah, and I have used the bibs though. It's not that I've never worn a chamois before, and I have used the bibs, and, and they do work. I've got the perfect system, Kaz. I got some like SWAT style bibs, and I just got some of those like little um, those little sewing scissors, and I just cut out the chamois. Best of both worlds, baby. Best of both worlds. All the storage of of, but then none of the weird. Wearing a diaper feeling. It's not weird. It's functional. It's so called, good. It's yeah, called being don't comfortable. Need it. You don't need it. You don't it's, use a chamois just... either? No, of course not. If you run a marathon and your feet hurt, it might be because you haven't got the latest socks and the most expensive specialist shoes that fit you well. It might be you're not used to running a marathon. Once you ride bikes for a bit, you don't need pads. You don't need chamois. I, that's bullshit. So I've been riding, they riding bikes for a bit. <laughs> I've got... I I just no like it's just so much hassle. Just wear pants. Good, we've got another one on Team No Chamois. Welcome, <laughs> yeah. Henry. Yeah, oh, that's weird. You guys in the comments, you guys should let us know if you wear chamois. We should do some sort of poll about this. Actually, yeah, I think I, I can't remember if I did or not. But yeah, we should. But you can let us know in the poll in the comments. Talking about chamois is funny. Even the word <laughs> is funny. Yeah. <laughs> do you like think it. moving on? Do you think that more than half of the pink bike audience uses a chamois? I bet it's fifty fifty. I bet a lot of them are still just wearing like cotton baggy boxers with jeans. Sarah Moore, what is an example of a product you have on your list that's been copied in the mountain bike world? Well, we talked about SWAT, so we could talk about sealant. I mean, Stan's is kind of the original sealant, but I think at our last field test, I remember we used blue sealant from Schwalbe. Schwalbe? You know... I don't know what we use because it doesn't matter. Who cares? It all does the same thing, but stands was first. Yeah. I know I've definitely used Maxima sealant before and it didn't seem to work quite as well. And I've used like Joe's No Flats. That seemed okay. But yeah, I definitely always, if I'm going to buy a sealant, I buy stand sealant. What about that sealant didn't work well, Sarah? Did it not uh, seal? It didn't seal, funnily enough. Like you got a cut and it didn't seal. Yeah. Yeah. Or it was also really hard to um, just get the tire on the wheel as well. And it just, it didn't seem, I mean, I've used those same tire wheel combinations with stand sealant and it just seemed kind of faster to get the setup ready as well. Yeah. Yeah. Kaz, many years ago, before sealant was readily available, I used to go to the hardware store or the uh, hobby store, sorry, and buy a big jug of latex sealant which you'd open the bottle and I would instantly get high in the small workspace I had. It was great. (laughs) And I would make my own tubeless tires using that stuff. I think it was pretty bad for me. It It might have ate the tires. Do you have a sealant preference or did you ever make your own sealant? I never made my own, but I definitely worked with a buddy that was always cooking up his new sealant concoction with yeah, liquid latex or liquid latex and ammonia or something. And glitter. glitter. Wasn't it Windex or something? I can't remember. Yeah, yeah glitter. There's funny. definitely glitter involved. I, I feel now like... you can put glitter in. Yeah. yeah. And that way, if you explode by the side of the trail, you look like you just came out of a strip club and you're just standing there wondering <laughs> what happened. But um, yeah, these days, I don't really have a preference. I do use stands a lot. It works well. Bontrager has a bunch that works pretty well. But like realistically, it doesn't really seal holes. It's more just to kind of help with those little tiny, tiny air holes to keep the tire inflated. Like if you hit, if you run over something sharp, you need to have a plug to fix it. You're not going to be magically have it seal up instantly. All right. So far in our copycat list, we have stands, the original that's been copied plenty. We have SWAT storage. We've seen that be copied now. Kaz, you brought up a good one that one that people might not think about power bars, the original, not good tasting energy bar <laughs> yeah and 
they just I just remember in like nine the early mid nineties when Power Bar first came out. I'm sure there were other uh, energy bars around that time, but they were definitely one of the first. And then once they started, they were everywhere because they sponsored a bunch of mountain bike races. Everybody was breaking teeth on these like pink colored, really disgusting but somehow edible bars. That, that was the best flavor, pink. No, I like yeah, the cookies Wildberry. and cream. That was so good. That's I don't not think original. That came till later. Oh yeah, I probably yeah. I don't. Know. <laughs> the original flavors were, I think there was apple, like apple cinnamon. Wildberry, and there might Wildberry was definitely. Pink. I gotta remember. I think there was four. There might have been four flavors. Now it came in those gold foil. Yeah. Packets. But anyways, yeah, kind of gross, but I kind of liked them. But then soon after that, everybody hopped on that bandwagon, and now the the energy bar industry is huge. It's probably like billions and billions of dollars people are spending buying these bars when they could just eat peanut butter and jelly. But obviously, it worked. So there was a lot of copycats because it makes sense. You see it, the concept. You know, it's easy to stick in your pack. And uh, so after that, there's a lot of copycats. And how much do you think one of those When bars was the last cost? time? Uh, to answer your question, Sarah, I bet power bars don't cost very much to make and they charge much more than they cost to make to purchase them. When was the last time you guys ate an actual power bar? Crickets. Sometimes I buy, uh, sometimes I buy cliff bars from gas stations. Yeah, no, no, no. But an actual power bar, like a oh, real power actual. bar. No, I stopped. I retired. I ate way too many in like yeah. 99 and like, yeah, maxed out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think for... I think they're think, still in me. Yeah. I, I think I'm going to get one just for memory's sake. I feel like they're your kind of real food. Like, I think that's why people moved away from power bars is because um, they were just like moving towards more real food. And so everybody got really excited about Cliff Bars and had another 70% organic. And then the they got even more real and more real. And now you're pretty organic. much eating, <laughs> eating Gross. you know, nuts and honey in a bar. So power bars, the original, they've obviously been copied since then. Geometry. Henry, you put a pretty good one on the list. Geometry for enduro bikes. Explain yourself. Well, I think there are a couple of people leading the charge. I'd say notable brands like Polar or Geometron. To be fair, you know, really nailed their colours to the mast early doors. And they had this geometry, which people were saying, it's unrideable, man. There's no way you can ride that. You can't even get it around turns, etc. Long rear ends, long front centres. And it turns out you can ride it. And actually, it's rather good. And a lot of other brands were just like, hmm, I don't mind if I do. I remember many years ago, I worked, it was about 10 years ago, and I worked in this bike shop. And this bike shop had its own brand of bikes, right? That were like kind of just just out there. And um, they, I was only like the shop, shop grom or whatever, just working in the workshop. And they said, oh, we need to bring out a 29er. Like, what geometry should we have? And they're just like, um, and they just literally just printed the PDF off specialized website. I mean, that's like, a great strategy. <laughs> I think it happens, not happens a lot, but I think there are definitely elements of that, like, oh my God, you know, with, for instance, these brands that were, were really pushing the boat out sort of thing. And, you know, other brands just, it took a while, but once they were convinced, they were like absolutely just borrowing as many attributes from those bikes as possible. Do you, do any of you have a problem with that? Like number, you can't patent geometry. You can't patent the numbers. And if the numbers work, I mean, do you guys have a problem with a bike brand copying some other company's numbers? Kaz, there was a brand not long ago who didn't want to post their geometry for that exact reason. Yeah, I don't, I don't have a problem with that copying, especially, I mean, if you, if you're, let's see, say your engineer, if you, if you don't have an engineer, your person working at your bike company that decides to make the bike, if they literally do the copy and paste, that does seem a little bit lame. But in the grand scheme of things, that bike already exists. And so the, by the time your bike comes out, it's going to be a year, probably two years before it's launched. And by then, that other company, they've moved on to the next thing. So that catch-up process, if you are the first to market with something, you're going to be in the lead as long as you can keep maintaining it. Yeah, so yeah, I don't think that, you know, Seeing, seeing geometry numbers and being inspired by them or whether it's blatant copying, I think it's fine because the other company already has a head start. Two other things that come to mind pretty quickly when we talk copycats, a headset design, the original threadless headset from Cane Creek. That patent ran out in 2010, which opened the doors for everybody to make their own headsets, Kaz. And then the other one, SPD pedal mechanisms. Yeah, I mean, we think of how many different kind of SPD pedals are out there that use Shimano's classic cleat design. I mean, almost every, it seems like every company that decides to come up with their own pedal, it's not a specific pedal manufacturer, you know, like, you know, Nukeproof uses it, DMR, um, 
Welgo? Look? Welgo, yeah. <laughs> VP. Um, yeah, and it, it's almost surprising when companies come out with new pedals that, that don't quite use Shimano's design. Like, I just saw Hope is coming out with some pedals that look great, but they don't use SPD cleats, which is, I mean, it's yeah. cool they're going down their own road, but it's also like, ah, I just want to be able to get cleats wherever I go to buy regular parts. If you're making, if you're a bike brand making your own pedal, it makes all the sense in the world to use the SPD mechanism. But then the other thing is, it, you're not really set apart. I think people only think Shimano then when they see your pedals. Whereas if you use Crank Brothers or Time pedals, it's like a whole other system. Crank Brothers is one of the few brands that have seen success with a completely different cleat and pedal design. Because not many people had, like, where are all the frog pedals, the Speed Play frog pedals, Kaz? They're gone. <laughs> they're gone. <laughs> they hopped you know? away. They <laughs> yeah. used to be so popular, and then they're boop, gone. How, how many HT pedals do you see out there? I like them, but nobody else uses them. They're gone, too. Um, it's basically SPD or nothing. And same thing with headsets. I mean, everybody uses some sort of threadless a headset design that basically copies that, Aside from a few companies, uh, Chris King being one of them, who had to come up with their own way to wedge the headset down and keep it locked in, where they didn't have to pay for Cane Creek's patent. But Kaz, if I go online, I find all sorts of people having all sorts of trouble with other weird headsets, headset designs that aren't just regular threadless headsets, right? I guess. I, don't, I guess I don't think about headsets that much. Nowadays, they're all kind of the same, you know, other than like bearing quality, but... yeah. Um, yeah, it's one of those things. It's such a good advancement. And then when the patent did run, run out, it just made sense that everybody kind of hopped on board. And I think we, on our list, we also have just the uh, the horse link suspension design. That's another thing. You know, Specialized had that patent for years, so people tried to get around it. I think some European brands were able to use that. But once it fully expired, now you get to see a lot of companies with horse link bikes because you know it's a good design. You can make that bike do what you want. Um, a lot of people would say it works better than single pivot, at least in their opinion. So uh, that's another thing. It's, you know, you could say it's a copycat, but yeah, people. Yeah, I'd agree. All right, Kaz, you've got something else on our list here. You put raw videos down for something that's been copied a lot. How, what do you mean? Yeah. You know, like we have raw videos and then Vital has raw videos. Vital did have their own little series they called raw, but basically it's just videos that haven't been edited a ton. There's no soundtrack. Um, Red Bull has the raw 100 series. And I think that trend, it, it makes sense because you just want to see what's happening. You want to see the action. It doesn't need fancy voiceovers or some dubstep, horrible soundtrack. So um, it's used in other sports as well. You just, you know, if you're watching a motorsports, it's just raw video. You don't need anything else on it. And so that's yeah. copying whoever did it, who did it first. I mean, it wasn't Pink Bike, but it also wasn't Vital. Um, <laughs> it's been done for a long time. But, you know, there are people that just see it one place, see it another, immediately think those are the only two people that have done it. But that concept has been copied and for a good reason like you know personally i love to watch those raw videos especially the track side the world cup like that's it's yeah. good i don't need to have someone tell me what's happening i can just watch and i don't need to soundtrack i just want to hear the noises i'm a really big fan of the whistles so if i can hear the whistle over and over again super into it <laughs> kaz you've also got camelbacks on your list camelback they were pretty much the first mountain bike specific backpack is that correct yeah as, yeah, exactly. And I don't even know if they first developed it for mountain biking. It might have been for running. I'm not, I could be wrong there. But yeah, I think the story, at least the way I know it, the guy might have been EMT or something. And he took like an IV bag and rigged it up and sewed it into a little backpack for when they first came out. But nowadays it's become so common. You don't even think that that was, it's like, it's like the word band-aid, you know, you call everything a camelback. Um, but yeah, hydration pack. But they're so, just one of those things that when it started, all of a sudden I was like, oh, that makes a lot of sense. And then different companies came up with their own systems. And now we've all kind of switched to hip packs, but that's another thing too. I mean, not everywhere, but a lot of people have switched to hip packs. Another thing, they seem goofy and then people try them. And I guess it's actually all right. And then more companies come out with their own designs. So, I make fun, but they make a lot of sense. Hip bags. Yeah, they're pretty, you know, if not going out for a mega ride, it's just kind of nice to not have the weight on your back. But, but yeah, both of those concepts, you know, they're one company comes out with it and then other people try to improve it or just do something really similar. Yeah. And Kaz, one of the last things on your list here is the old drop-in mountain bike TV series. Who copied that, or did we copy them? Yeah, well, drop-in, I, I just feel like drop-in is kind of almost the mountain bike equivalent of the Road Fools BMX videos. You put a bunch of guys in a, a in a bus and drive around and hit up different spots and do crazy things and record it. 
it's almost like reality TV before reality TV was like a as popular. Um, yeah, I like the concept. Hopefully, maybe one of these days we can get that going again. Just get some kind of goofy school bus and drive around the country. I don't want to be on the bus really, but we'll put other people on it. <laughs> that would be kind of neat if we if PB brought drop in back. Yeah, maybe Pink Bike Academy can do a like on a bus somehow, like a mobile and people, version. And then if you get kicked off, they just leave them by the side of the road and drive away. So Figure good, out your own way home. Pretty good. <laughs> uh huh. Yeah, you're just out. You're like off the bus. And just keep going. <laughs> All right. The last thing we're going to talk about, it's narrow wide chain rings. Kaz, I feel like I need lawyers from outside on the show if I want to talk about narrow wide chain rings, because Race Face and SRAM, weren't they having some sort of competition to see who could sue each other the most over this stuff? (laughs) They've definitely been having some battles over the last few years over this topic. Yeah. Yeah. So many brands have some sort of weird looking chain ring design that's supposed to increase the chances of it not falling off when you're not using a chain guide. But this was big news back in 2013 when SRAM first said that maybe we don't need to use chain guides at all. Sarah, that's when they released the XX1 one by group with no guide. And everybody was like, what? I don't think so. But they turned out to be mostly right. Many riders still like the insurance of a guide, but the shape of that teeth, the narrow wide profile really helps to keep it on. It basically works. uh, Basically, the thicker and the heavily stepped shape is followed by a standard looking tooth. And when you look at it from above, the tall alternating teeth match the inner profile of the male and female chain links. So basically, there's less wiggle room, so the chain can't move around as much, and it's not going to come off. MRP... They came out with their own. They used the wave ring. It's exactly like what it sounds. It had like wavy teeth. And Kaz, I think the idea there was to get around the patents. Is the wave ring still around? Yeah, I'm not sure. I can't say I've seen one in a long time, but that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. I just don't know if they really caught on. Yeah. And then I think was even going back to SRAM's original narrow wide design, I think that was inspired by some sort of tractor patent, which or not a, not a patent, but a design originally used for tractors i think yeah it was something like that like everything has been copied nothing is new basically is it true that race face was saying so sram chain rings were narrow wide narrow wide and is it true that race face were wide narrow wide narrow? And that's <laughs> i hope so i love it <laughs> <laughs> like you're starting from the wrong tooth or is it totally different <laughs> in court like charlie day like yeah. <laughs> To be fair to SRAM, their design worked right out of the gate, didn't it, Kaz? There was no real issues there. And since then, they've done a ton of work on that. And if you look at their narrow wide chain rings now, the teeth almost look, they look really strange. They've done a lot of work to the chain rings to help keep the chain on. And it's working pretty well, although they do get kind of gunky with mud and stuff. Um, there's also a ton of copycat stuff out there. I mean, they all work kind of well, don't they, Kaz? Yeah, I mean, they it's narrow and wide. It's like a really simple concept right? that works, which is why companies probably like, oh, we could do that too. Let's, you know, fire up the whatever, however, the chain ring making machine and <laughs> print them out. <laughs> the chain ring stamper. <laughs> There's also a ton of copycat cassettes out there. Although, Casimir, I might argue that they definitely, there can definitely be a performance disparity between an aftermarket cassette and a SRAM cassette. Would you agree? I'd agree. Yeah, it's rare that the... I think cassettes are where you do notice a difference. Whether, you know, sticking with Shimano or SRAM tends to give you the best results. And you can, you know, switching chain rings, I don't think I could tell a difference between a, one of these aftermarket what? ones and a regular one. I know, imagine that. <laughs> but cassettes, you are shifting so much. Um, yeah, I haven't found one that can match SRAM or Shimano's performance yet. Yeah. So there you go, everybody. That is our selection of products that have been copied in the mountain bike world. We're going to move on to comment gold. The first one is from Seb Stott's review of the Forbidden Dreadnought. Daniel Floyd says, suspension squish videos were the only part I stopped for on the way to the comment section. Was there a suspension squish video in there? Yeah, he had some. Good, good. There's a lot of words too, but they're worth reading. So I know people like to say they don't read, but man, people, you should read. Even if you don't read Pink Bike, read a book. On the same review... Dbone95 says, it won't be much longer before the head and seat angles are just pointing at each other. (laughs) That's probably not going to happen. In the works. (laughs) (laughs) 
All right. Our next one, this is posted underneath the last podcast article. This is from Dirtbag Tim. He says, all outside branded podcasts should henceforth be called outcasts. I don't hate that. Not bad. Better than pinkers. Oh, I like pinkers. Or outers. Yeah. Or outers. They didn't like outers. (laughs) (laughs) Outcasts. I like that. Big Tim commented underneath the specialized linkage fork article. Big Tim says, they could call it lump pumpers or rock stoppers. That's actually pretty good. I feel like that's appropriate for the trust fork, considering it didn't really fork all that well too much. (laughs) And then our last two comment golds there on the Yeti e-bike spotted article. The first one is from MTB Legend 92. He says, the first yet E, capital E, trail pup replies, the first Turk E, capital E, (laughs) ba-bum-bum. Seven out of 10, everybody. (laughs) All right. That is it for this episode of the Pink Bike Podcast. We gave you our selection of mountain bike products that have been copied to death. Sometimes they've been improved on, sometimes they haven't. Let us know in the comments below any other examples of mountain bike copycats that you can come up with. Tell us the original, give us the examples, the copycats, and tell us if they're any better. And we'll see you next week. 